we were thinking about retreat speakers. Um, I finished last year with Dr. Michael Sprague, who was a friend of mine, and we had invited him up to speak. And um, as soon as the retreat over was over, I scratched my head and said, what am I going to do next year? Uh, so I reached out to Roger uh, Pupart, our senior pastor, and John Gordon, and I said, how was your... Uh, how was the conference that you went to this past weekend? They had gone to an EFCA district conference where uh, different pastors from our district um, were involved and they were speaking and talking. And, and, I, and they said, well, it was fantastic. Was there anybody there who might be a great retreat speaker for next year? And uh, they said, you know something? There absolutely was. His name is West Brazelton. He says, the problem is West is a senior pastor somewhere else, and most of those guys don't get released on a, on a weekend uh, to do retreats. But West uh, went to his elder board and asked permission to do our retreat this year, and he's here uh, just uh, because of our invitation, uh, because of relationship with, with Roger, but also because of our passion for discipleship, passion for discipleship. And so as he speaks... Uh, this weekend, uh, I trust and I know that you will be challenged, uh, but you will be encouraged, and we're going to walk away from here, I hope, with some new lenses uh, on discipleship. So would you give me a warm Wayside Summit welcome to West Brazelton. What, uh, what Stephen didn't tell you is when they asked Roger who would be good for this speaking engagement, he said three of us who were all busy. And then when things got really slim pickings, they, they called me. So, uh, hey, thank y'all so much. It's really fun to be out here. I love men's retreats. I love just getting outside of Houston, Texas, honestly. Um, save me, please. Um, this is going to be interesting. Okay. Um, let's see. What do you need to know about me? I am, um, I'm, I've been friends with Roger for about 10 years. Uh, we are night and day different. I mean, like whatever Roger is, I'm not, I mean, literally it, it, he is, and I, I want you to hear this before he gets here because I don't want blown up. He is really bright. He loves Jesus and he knows more about running a church than I will ever know. I mean, and I'm not kidding you, that's not false humility. This, this cluster that I meet with twice a year, which includes Roger, they all joke. I mean, laugh openly as if I am not there, but I am there, about the, <laughs> about the fact that I know far less than all of them about running a church, but I am also like the happiest guy in the room. I mean, there's <laughs> no doubt. So I, if ignorance is bliss, man, bring ignorance on. Um, like <laughs> I have more combined. They are, they are laboring. Um, anyway, it is, it is great to be with y'all. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about John one for the first three, uh, first three talks that we have. And then we're going to jump in on Sunday morning to, uh, Matthew 28, which is the great commission. You guys have all heard it, but maybe you haven't heard what I'm going to say about it. Uh, it should be tons of fun. It's, John 1 is like a, a passage that is just incredibly dear to my heart. So I'm fired up to spend three, 
three lessons uh, all together in it. Let me pray one more time and, and we will get after it. Lord, help us this evening to be the men that you want. I pray that we would see ourselves as wholly loved by you, um, as sons are of a really good, good father. And Father, I pray that we would give all the credit for that perfect love that we have received to your son Jesus who has died for us on the cross and that we would live in freedom and in joy and in security and in all the other things that you promise us by salvation, by your gospel. And I pray that we would live it out and, and that would be reflected out to the world. And I, I pray that somehow over the next couple of days, our talks together, our time side of these talks would further your kingdom's purposes. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what is, this is the question we're going to start off with. That is basically not going to be used for the, until the second half of this. But what is your role in advancing the kingdom of God? I'm not asking you at all, how do we grow a church? That's, that's not the question. What is your role in advancing the kingdom of God? Totally different than getting butts in pews. That. Any monkey clanging cymbals on a street corner can draw a crowd. That is not hard to do. I'm talking the kingdom of God, and I'm talking about your role, not the pastoral staff's role. What is your role in advancing the kingdom of God? It's, it's definitely going to be making disciples. Um, it's the way that you're going to advance the kingdom of God, experience the kingdom of God. It, it's, know this about me. I have, I have like two answers to every question, three answers. Jesus, discipleship, and I'm clueless. Like th those are my three answers. It's like Jesus making disciples, and I don't have a clue. And so that's my bias for sure. Let me read you this passage one more time. I know that we, we kind of touched on it just a second ago, but we're going to start off, let's see, with verses 29 through 31, and then we're going to skip a few verses and then do 35 through 39. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself am, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then he's going to talk for just a few seconds there about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus and God revealing to John the Baptist in that experience that Jesus was the Son of God. I promise I'm not making that up. We're going to jump though to verse 35. The next day, Okay, so the first day, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world. Talks about the baptism. And then the very next day, John was standing with two of his disciples again, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, same type of scenario, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, which must have been really awkward, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that whole day, 
for it was about the 10th hour. So the question I have for you is this. I want you to answer me, but I want you to give it a little thought before you answer. When do you think John the Baptist's disciples believed that Jesus was the Lamb of God? I want you to look at the text, and I want you to find the verse that you think it, it all made sense to them. When did John the disciples start believing that Jesus was the Lamb of God. I'm not saying they believed it perfectly. You're going to see that grow absolutely over the course of the book of John. But, but when did it happen? Which time? Well, how do you know that he, they didn't believe the first time? So let me ask another couple of ways. Would you follow Jesus if you thought John the Baptist was mistaken or crazy? Like, if you're one of John the Baptist's disciples, and you love this guy, you've got a good gig following him, and he says, there goes the Lamb of God, kid. You understand that when he talks about the, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, he's talking about the culmination of all things Old Testament. He's talking about the sacrificial system personified. Like, you get that, that history has been craning its neck, straining to see this one coming. So, so you sit with him that first time. You sit with him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins. Would you follow Jesus if you thought John the Baptist was mistaken or crazy? Would you, would you leave the guy who's been discipling and take off? No, you wouldn't, right? Probably not. I don't know for sure. I'm speculating here, right? I get that. But probably if if you're going to sit there, it's because you think he's either mistaken or crazy or had, you know, bad enchiladas the night before. I mean, something's wrong with John the Baptist, so you're not going to get up and follow him, because that's a big statement. Let me ask another question. Could, could they believe Jesus was the Lamb of God and not follow Jesus? Is that possible? So there goes the culmination of all things historic, and you're saying, your discipler is telling you, this is the one we've been... You're going to go, yeah, there he went. That makes a lot of sense, right? It, if the president of the United States, fallen as he is, and all of the presidents are fallen, that was not a political statement, but if the president of the United States walked by just casually on the street and, and your friend says, I think that was the president, you go, huh, yeah. So what else are we going to do? You got any more of that bologna sandwich? Would, would you do that? Could they believe that Jesus was the Lamb and not follow Jesus? Almost certainly not. Oh, gosh. Do, what do we need to do? Okay. Next year? Let's go. Okay, wait a second. He's a liar. I put him up to it, so I'm a liar. Why do I do that? Here's the deal, guys. Here's the deal. 
Sometimes, yeah, see, I scared you. Some statements are so important that to believe them is to take action. Fair? Like the, the, the whole deal there was, is he telling the truth? But I promise you, as soon as someone started to say, maybe there is a fire, you're getting up and getting your stuff and getting back to San Antonio. Right? Because some, the message is so important that if it is true, it absolutely demands action. Let me ask that question again. Could you believe that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the culmination of all things historical, and not follow Jesus? Just sit back on the curb. Yeah, there he goes. There's no way you could. You wouldn't do that if the president walked by. The Messiah? There, there is no way you could sit on the curb if you believed John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins on the, of the world. Here's the deal. Sitting on the curb, sitting on the John the Baptist is wrong, or at least that the verdict is still out. But to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God is to follow the Lamb of God. I, I, I don't think that should be that hard. Belief compels activity so much that inactivity calls into question the sincerity of the belief. Do you hear that? Because that should step on your toes spiritually. Let me read it again. Belief compels activity so much that inactivity calls into question belief. It's the deal. Things are so important that to believe them is to take action. And I, I think that's why most of you said that the first day, the disciples probably didn't believe John the Baptist, and the second day, they did. And then you, and then you kind of reversed on yourself a little bit, because, you, well, they, they could have believed and not followed. Well, following was why you said they believed the first time. You, you get the point there? Look, some churches are going to teach salvation kind of by cognitive ascent. That you can just ascribe to Jesus as some sort of intellect and be unchanged. That you can buy it in terms of your cognitive ascent, but it, but it doesn't actually translate into a transformed life. I think the Bible just teaches otherwise. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's kissing cousins with, he'll follow me. Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. What I want to ask you tonight, and it's a serious question, is simply this. Do you believe that Jesus would... Put on the robes of humanity. Embrace an incarnation that compared to what he had before was absolutely humiliating. Walk for 30 years as a nobody. The son of a carpenter and a woman who really has a trashy reputation. No fault of her own. And then engage in a ministry that he would be rejected by the space of his religion, ultimately resulting in his crucifixion. Do you think he would mount that cross willingly 
to leave you unchanged? Like, was that his intent? I'm going to give them something called a cognitive ascent faith, but I'm not going to change their lives. No way! Why go to all that trouble to have no effect? That, that's, he, he was more ambitious in his sacrifice than that. Jesus didn't willingly go up, give up the glories of heaven, take on flesh and cross so that we could sit on a curb. Behold the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world. What are you going to do with it? So here's, here's the deal. My premise is that the gospel you believe will determine the disciples you make. The gospel you believe is ultimately going to determine the disciples you make. And so if you're not making disciples, there's probably something wrong with your gospel. Now, let's, um, let's get after that just a little bit, and let's see. I'm going to see if I can manage two PowerPoints. At, just so you'll know, I generally don't manage a PowerPoint, so this might be um, pretty hard for me. But there are six Gospels that we believe, and I'm going to switch that to that. Yeah, that is good. How many of you have heard the expression... Um, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Raise your hands. Preach the gospel. Okay, so half of you maybe. It's a good thing to remember, by the way. Uh, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Let me, let me kind of back it up. How many of you would say that you believe the gospel? Raise your hands. Almost all of you. And if, look, I wasn't trying to shame anyone. If you, if you sincerely don't believe in Jesus, I'm so pumped you're here. Hopefully you'll hear a lot about Jesus and you'll see a lot of people demonstrating Jesus by their changed lives all, all weekend. So this is a great place for you to be. No shame and not believing. But most of you said you believe the gospel. Okay, so most of you said you believe the gospel. Half of you said you've heard the expression, preach the gospel to yourself daily. How many of you would say that you are confident that if asked, you could articulate the gospel really clearly? Raise your hands. Three quarters, maybe, maybe 80%. So almost as many people as gospel think that they could articulate the gospel. Here's what's fascinating. Last year, I took a discipleship trip. The way I do discipleship trips, I'll, I'll take... 12 guys or so from our church, kind of really sharp guys who love the Lord. They can be brand new Christians. They can be seasoned Christians, but, but they're going to be uh, guys that I want to invest in over the next year. And the way I'm going to jumpstart that is I'm going to take them whitewater kayaking. They are, they're dependent on me because when they roll over, I'm the one who helps them roll back. It's, it's a wonderful advantage for me. As an old guy, I need this kind of thing. So I take these guys kayaking Every year, I'm, I'm taking a group in June. I'm, it's the highlight of my year. I find Western North Carolina, gorgeous place. Before I take these guys, I give them a survey. This is 12 guys, sharpest guys, young guys in our church. And I said, tell me what the gospel is. 12 of the sharpest young leaders in our church. I got six different gospels. Not like slightly different Gospels, wholly different Gospels. Wholly different Gospels. Leaders in our church. How many Gospels do you think we have of the 80-some-odd percent who raise their hands here? 
I, I bet there'd be at least six different iterations. Some of you would be the same as others, but there are all sorts of different gospels. See, we always talk about the gospel, but we don't do that great of a job defining the gospel, and I think that's part of the reason we don't end up making disciples. Because the gospel you believe will determine the disciple that you make. So I want to go through just some of the different gospels that you are prone to believe. And I just want you to know that um, we're going to go from least likely to be believed in this room. This is just me knowing Roger a little bit and guessing here. I think you'll probably agree with me when I start going through these gospels. We're going from the least likely to the most likely to be the first gospel that you are likely to believe the left gospel. You might be asking yourself, what is the left gospel? The left gospel, mostly taught in liberal churches. If a word 10 years ago or so was emergent church, they were big on the left gospel as well. Um, Their mantra is going to be help the needy because they're not really going to to do much other than than help people. Like that is their gospel, just just help people. Um, Now, The left gospel cares for needs, but it accommodates to culture. And the reason that it accommodates to culture is because truth or unknowable. That's the left gospel. Is there anything that is true about that gospel? (coughs) Hmm? Absolutely, right? I mean, it's easy for us on like a conservative church, and I'm from a conservative church too, to go, those guys are liberal and there's something right in that. And there's probably something that we can learn from in this. Is there anything that is inadequate or untrue about it? That's where everyone goes, hey, hey, man, what, what, give me something. Truth is optional, right? Truth is not optional. God gave us his revealed word because truth is not optional. That, that's what Revelation says. It says, I am revealing something that is not optional. It's absolutely true. So, That's the left gospel. And again, I don't think most of you in this room believe that gospel, but that is a gospel that circulates into Wayside Chapel periodically. I promise you. There's enough of that in the state of Texas, in the city of San Antonio, that there are people who you encounter, whether at work or in church, who say, I believe the gospel, and that's what they believe. And you need to be able to distinguish which gospel we're talking about. Let's go to the next one. The prosperity, y'all have heard of the prosperity gospel? Big fans of the prosperity gospel, right? I, I know Roger loves the prosperity gospel. It's, it's just, it's what he's about. Um, okay, so let's talk about the prosperity gospel. I'm clicking the wrong clicker because I am an idiot. Did I tell you that I know very little about running a church? I also don't know very much about PowerPoint. So, The prosperity gospel. Here's the problem with the prosperity gospel. It replaces a preeminent God with one who becomes a means to a worldly end. That's horrible. God as the ultimate end means to something else that we want more. Gross stuff. Motto of the prosperity gospel is claim your rights. There's an entitlement culture that attempts to manage God by our good behavior. If I pray the right prayers, if I do the right things, I will be rewarded with health and money. Is there anything right about this gospel? There is. 
I know that we hate to admit that, but there are some elements of truth in this gospel. What are some of those things? Prayer and faith matter. Hey, look, according to God's statutes, generally works out for us. I'm not saying all the time at all, but ultimately, there are all sorts of biblical promises. If you do this, good things will happen. Not necessarily these good things, but good things will happen. What's wrong with the prosperity gospel? Huh? It's that first line. Replaces a preeminent. God is the ultimate goal. God becomes a means to getting what we want. It's like Dr. Godwrench. You know, just come and he'll fix you up. He's like a vending machine. Just put the right stuff in and you get your toys. Not great. Not, not a big fan. Next gospel. What's the third gospel that we believe? The consumer gospel. You heard of this gospel? Not as many, right? Just want you to know, I promise you this is true. You're going to hate me for it. We're getting closer to home. There's probably more people who have bought a little bit of this consumer gospel than the other couple of gospels that we've looked at so far. What do we know about the consumer gospel? This is where sermon series like Seven Ways to Make Your Marriage Sizzle are born. It's all about felt needs. It's all about what is, what's going to help me live better. All we really haven't said is it's going to make me rich. But in the end, the motto is meet your needs. It creates a self-indulgent man-centered culture all in pursuit of relevance. And look, pastors are the worst at this. I don't think Roger is. I'm guessing Roger is not. If there was one person in the world that I would say is probably not a slave to relevance, it would probably be Roger. Although I think his preaching is, I've listened to it a little bit, it's really relevant because the Bible is relevant. But the reality is sometimes we try to make the Bible say things it doesn't necessarily say because we're trying to up so that non-Christians will come. And it creates ultimately the idea that this book is about us and how to get what we want rather than about Jesus and what he has done to save our sorry souls. It's kissing cousins with the prosperity gospel. And we've believed it more than we'd like to admit. That's the deal. It's so easy for conservatives to, to look at the prosperity gospel and go, I can't believe people fall for that. We've fallen for its kissing cousin. I promise you. The Bible is a a story of God redeeming a people through Jesus Christ for his glory. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. It's not seven ways to make your marriage sizzle. It's just dumb. So that's the third gospel. Let's look at the next gospel. It's called the right gospel. We're getting closer to home again. The right gospel says that knowledge equals spiritual maturity. If I know the right things, I'm spiritually mature. The person who can argue the scriptures most persuasively are the ones who are spiritually mature. Right makes might is the motto, the right gospel. It creates a culture of theological swagger where the elders are the people who really are impressed with their own knowledge. The Bible church and the Presbyterian church live in this space. I'm a Reformed Baptist. I don't, I don't know if y'all are Reformed or not, but I'm, I'm also part of Grace Bible Church. 
This is the water I swim in. It's, I have to repent of this all the time. Not probably as much as Roger, because I'm not as smart as Roger. I play, he studies. You're better off for Roger than for me. This is water I swim in. It really is. That's the right gospel. What's, let's go back. What's, what's right about the right gospel? What? Knowledge is important. Please don't hear me throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that. I spend 15, 20 hours a week studying for my sermons every week because I think getting it right matters. I promise um, truth matters. Knowledge is important. What, what else is right about the right gospel? It's good to have spiritual maturity, and it's also good to know that Scripture then is our authority. The right gospel, assuming that we believe that the right is founded in Scripture, puts people's nose in the book, and that's a good thing. So it, it drives us to our authority, even if our heart isn't necessarily right. Now we're talking about what's wrong about the right gospel, this whole theological swagger thing. It can create pharisaical dispositions. It can be a real problem. That, that is something that really hinders the gospel. So it's the gospel in my life if I'm not really careful. So, um, Okay, let's go on to the next one, the forgiveness-only gospel. We're going to have some fun with this one. You're going to hate me for a few minutes. Uh, hopefully, you'll, you'll come around and you'll let me speak tomorrow. Um, the forgiveness-only gospel is the gospel that most of you have heard. It is the idea that we are sinners. Jesus died for our sins. Belief in him will enable us to go to heaven. Now, that's what you believe the gospel is, right? That's the gospel. The mantra, obviously, would be be forgiven. Believe in Jesus. You get to go to heaven. That's a wonderful thing. It was made popular by Bill Bright and Billy Graham. God rest his soul. Because that guy's a hero. Mostly Billy Graham, but I'm a big fan of Bill Bright, too. They made something popular that I don't think is correct. Now, hear me on this. Bill Bright made it popular not because he believes it. Billy Graham made it popular not because he believes it. They didn't believe that this was the gospel. Bill Bright, though, created the four spiritual laws. Y'all heard of the four spiritual laws, Campus Crusade for Christ? It's a great pamphlet. What does it say? We are sinners. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, which is at least misleading. They've changed it, by the way. Um, Jesus Christ died on a cross, was resurrected from the dead. You believe in that. You escape the torments of hell. You get to go to heaven for spiritual laws. That's all true. It's just not all the gospel is. And Bill Bright knew that because you know what Campus Crusade for Christ did for years and years and years and still does, but now named crew. They make disciples. But the four spiritual laws and their stuff were on two different tracks, weren't they? You'd give out the four spiritual laws, and once someone believed, then you'd try to get them into discipleship. Bill Bright believes in disciple-making, but the four spiritual laws became synonymous with the gospel. 
Let's present the gospel on the campus. Give him the four spiritual laws. There was more to it for Bill Bright. It just wasn't in the four spiritual laws, and we started to think that the four spiritual laws was the gospel. Billy Graham. How do I know that Billy Graham believed more than the forgiveness-only gospel? It's not because he said more than the forgiveness-only saves, but he hired a guy named Robert Coleman who wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is, ironically, a book about disciple-making. The Master Plan of Evangelism is about disciple-making. It's a classic. In disciple-making circles, there is the Robert Coleman Award. He's the grandfather of disciple-making. Billy Graham hires Robert Coleman to follow up his big crusades to implement disciple-making strategy. That's how we know that Billy Graham believed in more than the come-as-you-are from his crusade. He followed it up. But the people watching on TV, the crusade, they ever see Robert Coleman? No. And so they started to associate Billy Graham with the presentation of the gospel, which was walking an aisle, believe in Jesus, go to heaven. Now, he believed in more, but he didn't have time in a nightly crusade to present the whole gospel. He, he presented the plan of salvation. I don't criticize them at all. What they were saying was right and appropriate. Abs I, I'm literally, one of my favorite books is a biography about Billy Graham. The guy's a hero, absolute hero. Particularly speaking, we started to narrow the gospel in the 1950s and 60s, partly because of these two men, because they, they wrote and spoke a forgiveness-only gospel, knowing that other people were, or other tracks were going to follow it up, but there was a dissociation. We started narrowing the gospel. It's created a culture of optional spirituality, holiness, and discipleship. Why have so many Christians in America not followed the Great Commission? Jesus' last words before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything even that I have taught you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And we somehow thought that was optional because we believed a gospel that says, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. If I believe in him, I escape the terrors of hell and I go to heaven. And everything in the interim between believing and going to heaven becomes optional because it's not really part of the gospel. And therefore, the forgiveness-only gospel sanctions passivity amongst men who spend years and years and years professing Christ but not following Jesus, not making disciples as Jesus commanded us. It's another God. Oh, we're not going to do it now because we're kind of going long. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Go and read it tonight. It's a cool meditation. It's a great passage. It talks about the gospel giving us hope for heaven. That's what we've always believed about the gospel and spiritual fruit. The gospel produces fruit. It can't just be forgiveness only. We get to go to heaven. It produces fruit. That's the point. Do you know that the gospel is used 12 times in the four gospels? 12 times the word gospel is used in the gospels. 
11 of the 12 times the word gospel is used, it is used before the crucifixion or the resurrection. How can we believe that the gospel is about believing in Jesus who was crucified so that we can escape the terrors of hell and go to heaven when it is used 11 out of 12 times before Jesus has even been crucified? We've narrowed the gospel. It's a better gospel. It's called the kingdom gospel. Or in Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus uses that term several times. It includes everything in the forgiveness-only gospel. I'm not diminishing any of that stuff. It's great stuff. But it also emphasizes his resurrection, our union with Christ, and the transformation that it brings in people's lives who have truly believed. Look at Romans 6 as a point of reference. Roman, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Again, we're running short on time. Romans 5, Paul is talking about people going to heaven or hell based on their affiliation with the first Adam or the second. And if you have believed in Jesus, he says, you are going to heaven. Paul uses what is called anticipatory argumentation. He anticipates the objection of his opponent, and he says, what shall we say then? If we go to heaven wholly based on what Jesus did and not on our own works, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Isn't this a formula for hypocrisy? He says, Meganoita, may it never be. Strongest negation you can use in Greek. He says, don't you know that we have died to sin? How can we live in it any longer? That's confusing. Particularly died to sin. I'm, I'm swimming in sin. What does he mean that we have died to sin? He, he goes on, actually, to explain that. Don't you know that we have died to sin? How can we live in it any longer? Pass Romans up. Do you not know, he's going to go on to explain, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That would be great if we only understood the word baptized. It's a great explanation. But we don't understand the word baptized because it's not a translated word, it's a transliterated word. It means that we have taken a Greek word and just made it sound English. We didn't translate it. There's no meaning conveyed. The only thing that we believe about baptize is what we have seen in a baptism because we've just made a Greek word English. It's like taking the English word blue jeans and in Spanish saying it's blueiness. It's dumb. It's People do it, but that's a transliteration. It doesn't convey any meaning. So don't you know that all of us who have died to sin, how should we live in it any longer? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Baptized means to immerse or figuratively to be totally identified with something. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized, immersed, or identified completely with Christ Jesus were immersed into or totally identified with him in his death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism, by this total identification into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. The Greek word for newness is kainos, and it means of a different sort. Another life when you come to Jesus, you're given a different sort of life. 
Why should we go on sinning? We shouldn't. May it never be. Why? Because we died to sin when we were united with Christ. As he died, we died. And as he was given new life, we, because we're united with him, verses 5 through 11 is talking about union with Christ, we're with him. He got new life, we get new life. It also emphasizes resurrection, union with Christ, and transformation. Redemption, ultimately experience of God, are both part of the kingdom gospel. And experiencing God happens by kingdom participation. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You'll know me, you'll experience me when you're obedient and following after me and great things will happen. So the mantra is follow me and it links salvation and discipleship. Discipleship is just our followership of Jesus. When, when we are disciples, followers of Jesus, we were disciples because Jesus, the guy we're following, says make disciples. So you can't be a disciple without making disciples because the disciple maker said, make disciples. It's not optional. Not if you've understood the kingdom gospel. So we're going to take some time now and, and we're going to talk through in our small groups the, the different gospels, the six gospels that we're prone to believe. We're going to talk about which ones we've bought into a little bit, which ones we've bought into a lot. And hopefully you'll have time to get into whatever that gospel is that you've believed and how it has impacted your disposition both to being a disciple and to making disciples. But I promise you, the gospel you believe determines the disciple you make. By the way, last thing, anticlimactic. It creates a culture, this kingdom gospel of disciples, people who are living and learning like Jesus. We need more of that in the church in America, don't we? Yeah. That's it. Let me pray. Father, help us. Help us to have a lot of fun in these small groups. Lord, uh, I pray that we would be men who, who respond to challenge and who are humble enough to hear these things and, and to take that which is true and to leave that which is false, but to wrestle through it together. And I pray for the small groups that are about to take place that you would accomplish your kingdom purposes and that uh, we would examine ourselves with humility and sobriety. Help us, as a result of this time together, to be more like your son Jesus. That's, that's the main prayer, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.